So much of what we've talked about this week and what we often talk about in our practice all the time really talk about is the importance of the body, is the importance of the body. I've talked a lot about how uh, one of the real insights I've had about this practice and about life uh, is into the body and the importance of coming to the body. And this is really what awakening is and that it's through the body that we awaken to the truth of our lives. Through the body, we find what we need to find in this life. It's all right there in the body. So in the body, we find our wish to be happy and the wish that we have for others. It's inside. We find metta, we find love, inside, compassion, joy, inside, in the body, in the heart. All my life I always looked for fulfillment, satisfaction, happiness in things outside of myself, in things outside of myself. I think part of the reason why I always did that is that I didn't feel so good about myself and that I thought I needed to get something from outside of myself and I think even you know, on our journey uh, we kind of look, somebody's going to give me something that I need somehow I'm going to receive something that I don't have that I need a few years ago a number of years ago I hit a little bit of a spiritual crisis as we all do at different times, you know. I'm usually good for a spiritual crisis every five years or so, you know. And uh, actually just had one. Uh, and this was a number of years ago when I realized that uh, I'd lost confidence in myself. I had lost confidence in myself. And when I realized that, uh, I, at that time, just turned to myself and I realized that I had everything that I needed right inside of myself. But I had forgotten that. And because I had forgotten that, I lost confidence in myself. You know, sometimes as I do this practice and come inside and come into the body and to the quality of metta inside of myself, sometimes I have this insight, you know, it's like, you're not such a bad guy after all. You know, you've got this inside of yourself. You've got this love inside of yourself. You've all got it inside of yourself. It's right there inside each one of us. There's this place inside where we find wisdom, where we find love. It's the only place where we can find it. I always like to say, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. And I don't think I really quite understood that. I I know that I didn't quite understand that until I started doing this very practice that we're doing here this week. And my teacher, Michelle, who I've talked about, you know, really taught us to get the felt sense. That was the first time I really understood or really had proof that it was right there. It's like, holy crap, it's right there inside of myself. It's right there. It's not an abstraction. It's not an idea. It's something inside of us, something that we can feel, a felt sense. 
you know, it's sort of an acknowledgement. You know, doing this practice is sort of an acknowledgement of our goodness. It's like, come here, do this, because you have a goodness inside of yourself. It's kind of interesting if you think about it, like what this practice is, is like you've got something inside of yourself, we're going to help you find it. And if you think about it in those kinds of terms, it's really interesting. It's not so mystical. You have something inside of yourself, we're going to help you find it. I've often said it was like the book that was very popular when I was a when I was a kid, Fantastic Voyage, you know, where the, the, there was somebody, I think it was the president, actually, who had some kind of, uh, you know, uh, some internal, something went wrong inside and they couldn't operate using conventional methods. So what they did is they took a submarine and they put some surgeons in there and a submarine pilot and they shrunk it. This is Isaac Asimov. And they shrunk it down to minuscule size and they injected it, you know, and then it was this fantastic voyage inside the body to the place that they had to fix. I think it was a movie actually starring, I want to say Stephen Boyd. So it's this fantastic journey. And getting to it, of course, is a journey. It is a journey. This is what we're doing. And it's hard. It's hard uh, because as we've talked about, as we've talked about, we are coming up against a lifetime of karma that has taken us a long way from the body and a long way from ourselves. Transmigrating and wandering on. From an inconceivable beginning comes transmigration. A beginning point is not evident of beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. And it's the only reason why we've been transmating and transmigrating and wandering on is because of ignorance, because you know, we weren't taught where to find happiness and what we need to do. And then that's really what ignorance is. It doesn't mean we're not stupid. It means that we don't know what we need to do and that we're not doing it. Here, you know, really what we're doing is moving to wisdom, moving to wisdom, developing this wisdom. A beginning point is not evident. The beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving are transmigrating and wandering on. What do you think, monks, which is greater, the tears we have shed while transmigrating and wandering on this long, long time, crying and weeping from being joined with what is displeasing and being separated from what is pleasing? The tears are the water and the four great oceans. So we've been transmigrating and wandering on a long way from the body. And of course, as we begin to make this effort to come into the body, the body seems like a very inhospitable region. There's pain in the body. Largely, the physical pain is very daunting to us because we haven't been trained to work with the body and to develop good places in the body to put our mind so our tendency in our lives, our awareness, the inclination of our awareness is only to go to pain. Right? We have a, you know, what we focus on in the body is what's painful, if we're hot, or it's this pain or that pain. And that's sort of how our minds have been, so we associate the body with pain. And of course, you know, there's this Dharma pain that we come up against. You know, that's that's the mind throwing obstacles. 
in our way as we make this journey to come to the body. Some of you know, uh, a number of years ago now, more than 10 years ago, uh, I had been having like really bad chronic back pain, and then it hit just this apex uh, where uh, I really couldn't get out of bed for almost a month. And of course, what I came to understand was that uh, it was all about the mind. It was all about what the mind was doing in its effort to divert me from the mental and emotional pain that was in the body. And once I began to work with this unbelievable pain that put me on my back, put me in bed for over a month, the pain went away and I haven't felt it in 10 years. So this, that, there's nothing wrong with my back. You know? You know, but that was, that was an indication to me that I had work to do, that I had work to do, that there was stuff inside, trauma. You know? So I went through a period of doing a lot of trauma work, a lot of body-centered therapies, a lot of different kinds of body work so that I could get back into the body and make that journey inside to the heart we have all this mental pain and suffering in the body you know we've seen it arise as we've made this journey inward these obstacles that we've come up against that we invariably invariably come up against but we've learned to meet these obstacles with wisdom and with compassion to give our attention to these obstacles to engage in this process of healing so that we can go through these doorways into the body and into the heart. And the healing, you know, I, I just have noticed so much that, you know, the first few days of the retreat, you know, and of course I'm doing the practice too, you know, there's so much of a need to just make that gentle shift to compassion you know, as I make this effort to connect inside and the self-hatred and the self-loathing and the anger and I won't go on ad nauseum, arise, you know, and it's just like, oh, compassion again, compassion time, time to go to compassion, you know, and it's just like, it's like, I have to keep going to compassion, when am I going to get to the metta, you know? But that's how we are able to make that journey inside. So much compassion we need, so much compassion we need as we make this confrontation with ourselves, with our minds and our bodies. So we've talked about a lot of the things that uh, we need to look at if we're going to make this excursion inward and if we're going to be able to connect to the heart and to metta. And yet, what I would submit to you is that we haven't yet addressed the greatest obstacle. We haven't yet addressed the greatest obstacle. Don't you want to know what it is? <laughs> it may very well be, and I would submit it to you, that the most profound obstacle we face, the most profound reason why we move away from the body and away from the heart lies in our ability to accept the most profound truth about this body the most profound fact, inalienable fact about this body, no matter who you are, which is that this body will age, get sick, and this body will die. We 
will die. You know, and that's, in the end, perhaps the greatest obstacle to going in. Because we turn away from the body because it will die. And because that's such a hard thing for us to accept and to embrace, but that's exactly what we have to do until we can accept and open to this profound, most profound truth about the body, the truth of death. We'll never be able to fully inhabit the body. How can we fully inhabit the body if we're at odds with its most profound and resounding fact that it will get sick, age, and die? We'll never be able to fully inhabit the body, open the body, be in the body, and be in the heart until we can accept and embrace the truth that we'll die. This body will die. This body will pass. How can we embrace the body if we don't accept, if we don't honor this truth, this fact? The Buddha understood this completely. The Buddha understood this completely. His path, the path that he laid out for making the journey to the body, addresses this very important truth, this great truth about the body. When he lays out the path into the body in the Satipatthana Sutta, this is where he lays out this path into the body in the Sutta. And he says, first find one place in the body that feels pretty good, right? Don't pick a place. You know, we learned this, right, in our practice. I learned this from Tanjep. You know, for years I was had a really hard time meditating and going into the body because I was never taught to feel a place that was good. So of course I did what I would always do, inclined to the place in the body that felt painful. You know, so I just felt the nostrils when I had a sinus condition and the belly when I had a stomach ache. You know, and Tanjep said, "What are you doing?" You know, if you're ever going to get into your body, you better find a place that feels good. Find one place. Start there. Start with that one place. And then once you can establish some mindfulness of that one place, cultivate that place so it's easeful and it's pleasurable so that you can make this journey into the body and have that safe home for the mind inside. And then once you establish this safe home for the mind, begin to spread this quality of ease and well-being throughout the body so that you begin to establish the body as a pleasant abiding. You develop a pleasant abiding in the body, and then and only then can we really make the journey into the body. And the Buddha said that very clearly. Until he did that, he would always be looking for things outside of himself. He was always tempted by things outside of himself. So we make this journey into the body. We establish this pleasant abiding in the body. And then, of course, what does the Buddha tell us? We do that in meditation at the foot of an abandoned building or uh, at the foot of a tree or in an abandoned building. And then he says, okay, now you have to maintain that in all your postures as you go throughout your life. Maintain that pleasant abiding in the body. That's the mark of concentration. And then he kind of throws a curve in the Satipatthana Sutta. He says, okay, develop this beautiful abiding in the body and carry that with you out into the world. And now look at what the body is. Now let's look at the truth of the body. And he says, well, the body is made of these 32 body parts. This is what it is. He said, cut the body in half, take out all the, this is all it is, it's these parts. And then he said, it's just these elements. It's made of these elements. 
The body arises out of these four elements and passes into and, and eventually takes shape in the body and then it returns back to their elemental form. The body is this process, in other words, of coming and going, of impermanence. So we have the earth element which takes form as the solid and heavy parts of the body, the bones and the organs and the teeth and the nails. And gradually, as we get older, as we get older, we begin to start to feel, right? We begin to start to feel the body returning to the earth. We begin to start to feel the body returning to the earth. The body starts to get heavier, and I'm not talking about in terms of weight, you know, but it's drawn to the earth, and it's hard to get up, basically. You know, it's hard to get up off your chair. It's hard to get up off the floor, you know, because we're being pulled back down into our elemental form. This is the truth of the body. This is the truth of who we are. What we are is impermanent, takes form in this shape, and then passes back to its elemental nature. So there's the water element of the body, the liquid element of the body, uh, which gradually returns back to water. Skin starts to get dry. So, you know, most of my life I like never had to use moisturizer. Now I go like through bottles of moisturizer like crazy because the skin is getting dry, the hands are getting dry, body is drying up. Part of the water element is the cooling element in the body. So because the water element is returning back to its original state or back to the state of water, we don't have that natural cooling element to the same degree in the body which means the heat bothers us a lot more. You know, heat didn't bother you as much when you were a kid, right? You know, or when you were a younger person, but it starts to bother you more and more. And then, of course, there's the fire element, which gradually returns back to nature. And there's less warmth in the body, and the cold bothers us more. Why do you think all the senior citizens are going to Florida? <laughs> you know? It's like I... Winter, I hardly ever, you know, I never had to bother with coats and gloves and hats. Now it's like, i got to get my hat on and my gloves, you know. Or as my dear, dear friend, Harry, used to say, he really put it most succinctly. He's a couple of years older than me, and he said, you know, when I was a young man, when I got in my car, the first thing I did was turn on the radio. Now when I get in my car, the first thing I do is turn on the heater. And then the wind element. You know, the wind element begins to return. So we have less wind, we have less breath. Notice that when you climb a flight of stairs. The, you know, and of course, wind element is also energy. You know, and the energy in the body is going through this process of entropy. You know, energy, wind element is always there. It just takes different forms. That's entropy. It's no longer taking form in our body anymore. It's taking form somewhere else in the universe. So the Buddha has us look at the truth of this body, that this body is just made of these elements and it's impermanent, and it will return back to nature. And then he takes it one step further. You know, the final contemplation in the Satipatthana Sutta is, of course, the cemetery contemplation. This is the truth of the body, he says. This body will die. In the service of keeping this not so dramatic, I'll only read part of it. But he says, and this is the final contemplation in mindfulness of the body, he says, 
Furthermore, as if he were to see a corpse cast away in a charnel ground, one day, two days, three days, dead, bloated, livid, and festering, he applies it to this very body. So he's saying, this is the contemplation that you have to make. You know, because like, you can't see your own death, so you have to look at some other body to understand what's going to happen to your body. So he applies it to this very body, this body too, this is in quotes, this body too, such as its nature, such as its future, such as its unavoidable fate. And then he goes through a whole series of contemplations, like I said, in the spirit of our genteel uh, personas I want. But I'll, I'll just read the next one. He says, as if he were to see a corpse cast away in a charnel ground, picked at by crows, vultures, and hawks, by dogs, hyenas, and various other creatures. You get the picture. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I think that he's doing here is that, you know, is, 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 is to me interesting and very compassionate. You know, he, he, first we develop concentration, we develop equanimity so that we can make these kinds of observations and look at these things and, and really understand the truth of death without flinching. You know, we're developing that inner strength, but at some point he said, You've got to get to the point. You know, and it's really kind of the culminating piece in terms of making the journey into the body. You've got to look at the body. You've got to understand the truth of your body. You've got to begin to understand that this body is subject to death, and this is its nature, its unavoidable fate. This contemplation supports our efforts to go into the body, to be with the body, and to go into the heart. As we know and embrace what this body is and the truth of this body and the truth that this body will die, then we can really have compassion for ourselves. This is where we can really develop our compassion. Is when we can embrace, you know, it's compassion and we have to embrace suffering. Well, this is the greatest suffering that we'll all face, the fact that we'll get sick, age, and die. And when we can embrace that, then we can really have compassion for ourselves and really make that connection into the heart. And when we can appreciate the truth of this body, that this body is impermanent, that it will die, we can appreciate the beauty of the body. The beauty of the body is found in its truth. Just like the beauty of nature is found in its impermanence. It's in, in, it's in its impermanence that there is beauty in the body. Just like we see this in nature, in the natural order of things. You know, what's more beautiful than the change of seasons? What's more beautiful than the leaves turning in the fall and dropping on, from the trees? You know? I mean, when we really embrace the nature, true nature of this body, that what this body is, we can really appreciate the beauty of it. It's right there. I talked about uh, one of my mentors from the past, uh, Milton Kessler, the poet. Uh, one of the things that he liked to say was, if you want to be a poet, you have to live in a place where the seasons change. And Nietzsche talked about this a lot. Uh, the term that he used was He said that if we want to truly live our life fully, we have to develop what he called amor fati, love of our fate. Amor fati, love of our fate. 
In other words, the fate. We have to not only accept it, we have to love our fate. We have to love the truth of what will happen to this body, which is it will die. He said, I want to learn more and more to see as beautiful what is necessary in things. Then I shall be one of those who makes things beautiful. Amor fati, let that be my love henceforth. Can never resist another Nietzsche quote. He said, my formula for greatness in a human being is amor fati, that one wants nothing to be different, not forward, not backward, not in all eternity, not merely to bear what is necessary, still less conceal it, but love it. But love it. That comes from one of Nietzsche's books in a section in the book called Why I Am So Clever. <laughs> he had a good sense of humor, Nietzsche. You know, I talked last night about looking at the faces and really looking at the faces. You know, well, there's one face that I didn't really talk about so much that we need to look at, which is our own in the mirror. Can we really look at our face in the mirror and see the beauty in this face and in this body that's inherent in its truth, that it will die? You know, only then can we really love ourselves and love others unconditionally. You know, love, according to the Buddhist definition, is pure. Unconditioned. It's not based on what we look like or how we're feeling. It's unconditioned. We love this body in all of its imperfection. Only when we can accept and embrace death can we live fully. Can we live fully? You know, until we open fully to death, there's always the inclination to turn away from ourselves, to turn away from the body, to turn away from the heart. So as Dharma students, following the Buddha's lead and his most primary instruction, which is found in that Satipatthana Sutta, we reflect on the truth of death. This is the skillful use of thinking. This is what we've been talking about, using the head to connect to the heart. And of course it has to be done, as I've already alluded to, with equanimity. But the Dharma student learns to reflect on the truth of his or her death on a regular basis on a regular basis. I often say, at least once a day. At least once a day. Some days you're not up to it, take a pass that day. Gradually, it becomes just a way that we look at ourselves and look at the world and understand things. We see very clearly and understand. But you know, we have to use fabrication to develop that understanding. We have to reflect. You know, and reflection you know, which we talk about a lot and really we're kind of talking about it in opening the heart and developing an awareness of the felt sense. Uh, You know, we reflect on the truth of our death, but it's not thinking about it because thinking about it just takes us further away from it. You know, reflecting is, yeah, this is true. I'm going to die. Fairly uncomfortable silence there, right? You know? This is true. We're all going to die. The Buddha said that 
you know, there's a, a, an interplay that goes on in, in the teachings, and I won't go through the whole thing, but it sort of ends, well, part of it is like this, where the Buddha says to the monk, you know, how, how often do you reflect on the truth of death? And the monk says, well, I reflect on it with every breath. The Buddha says, not good enough. He says, you have to reflect on it with every in-breath and with every out-breath. He said that's what he did so that he could fully embrace the truth. Of course, he had a lot of equanimity for Buddha. The Buddha said that when we practice mindfulness of death, we gain a foothold in the deathless. It's the way to the deathless. When we open to the truth of death, you know, we become disenchanted with conditioned things. The sense pleasures that we talked about the other night, the possessions, the gain, the status. And we turn to understanding that things die, we turn to what's unconditioned, what doesn't die. Because there is that which doesn't die. We find that inside, in the happiness of the heart. Most of us know the Buddha's story. His path really began when he realized that he was going to die. He realized the truth of sickness, aging, and death. That was the beginning of his journey. He was a prince who had all those sense pleasures and all that kind of status. You know, and when he realized that he would die, just like that person who was dead that he saw when he went out into the town, he began to ask, is there a greater happiness than this happiness that I'm ascribing to as a prince, this happiness of luxury and wealth and sense pleasure? When he understood that he was going to die, he said it wasn't fitting for him to look for happiness in these things that were conditioned, these really, when we look at it, quite meaningless things, that when we die, that we really see that they really don't mean so much. Well, is there something that really means something? I talked a little about the other night about one of the suttas, which is really the sutta about the monk known as Ratapala. You know, Ratapala was also a prince. We're all princes and princesses here. <laughs> and he was, you know, he took a lot of heat from his family about becoming a monk. You know, and once one day somebody, one of his relatives, I think it was one of the king, one of his king relatives. I got my uncle Richie, he has kings, you know. His king relative came to see him at the monastery and said, what are you doing here? You got all that stuff, what are you doing here? He said, the world is swept away. That's where that sutta comes from. So the Buddha, of course, offers us many different kinds of reflections on death. One of the most, uh, uh, one of the reflections that uh, we practice the most and uh, that uh, in the Buddhist tradition is practiced is the reflection on the five subjects. You know, it's the five subjects for frequent recollection. As the Buddha said, we should often reflect on this. I am subject to illness, aging. I am subject to death. Death is unavoidable. Reflect often. Reflect often on this. And of course, what he says is, we're subject to death. I'm the owner of my actions. I'm born of my actions. And what, of course, he's saying here is that happiness is found through our actions. Happiness is found through our actions. We find happiness in actions that are informed by love. 
know, so even though we'll get sick and age and die and we'll be separated from all that is dear and, dear and appealing to us, we find happiness in this life, a great happiness, a lasting happiness, a true happiness, by taking action that's informed by the heart. That's what matters, is our actions. What matters is that our actions are informed by love for ourselves and for others. Just like the action we've taken in being here. people have talked about in the interviews, the meetings, uh, how you know, maybe there's little actions they've taken over the last day or so as we've been cultivating the heart that were reflections of love for themselves. I even noticed myself doing a few, where did that come from? You know, It's like those little actions are very profound. Remember what the Buddha said, a finger snap of loving kindness is greater than 10,000 moments of non-loving kindness. So we begin a little by slowly to take these actions that are informed by loving kindness. And it's very important not to underestimate all the actions that we take and certainly not to underestimate the power of each action that we take for ourselves and for others that's informed by the heart. That's the path to happiness. You can see how when we begin to cultivate the heart, you know, in our practice here, you know, as we go through these next few days, is to get deeper and really to have this quality of metta sort of saturate into us, to really soak in this quality of metta, you know, so that when we leave here, it's kind of soaked into ourselves, you know, and we remember, may I be happy, may that person be happy. You know, and that our actions thereof more and more become informed by this quality of the heart. In the Sutta that that chant comes from, it's a little bit more laid out. He's, the Buddha talks about these very things. He said, if you don't understand that you're going to die, you're going to probably take unskillful action. And he t- says a few more things in there. And one of the things that he says there in that sutta is he said, you should reflect on this also. I'm not the only one subject to death who has not gone beyond death. To the extent that there are beings, past and future, passing away and re-arising, all beings are subject to death, have not gone beyond death. When he or she reflects on this, the factors of the path take birth. He or she sticks with that path, develops it, and cultivates it. So... It's not just us that dies. Benefactor is going to die. The dear friend, that neutral person, my, my, my letter carrier, she's going to die. The person sitting to the left of you in the hall is going to die. The person sitting to the right of you. The person sitting in front of you and behind you. All these beings in this room are going to die. All those beings, all those faces on the street. You know, if we really look beyond, I like this one and I don't like this one, we really see the truth, which is each of those beings is going to die. Each of those beings is going to die. You know, when we understand this, you know, we don't take it so personally. You know, we begin to understand that this is just the way it is. I'm not the only one. You know, we begin to look around and say, you know what? I guess I'm going to die. Everybody seems to be dying. You know? When we understand this, that all beings, all those beings, all those faces on the street, all those beings die, 
the heart begins to open wider and wider with compassion, with love for all beings, understanding that every being that we see there will die. Every being will die, and every being has a wish to be happy. We're all in this together. There's a lot more about us that we share than what's different. We tend to look at the differences, right? That's the way we look at others. This teaching is about seeing what's true and same in all of us, and most of what we see is we can identify in each one of us. We're all going to die. We all have the wish to be happy. So we can reflect all beings are subject to death. I am subject to death. One of the reflections that Tanjef suggests is at, at night as the sun is going down, I mean, this is kind of an intense one. You have to be up for it, you know, just reflecting. But you start to do this. You, know, you start to just do this as the way that you look at the sun going down. This might be the last sunset I ever see. And when the sun comes up in the morning, because it might, when the sun comes up in the morning, you know, it's like this might be the last time the sun comes up, that I see the sun come up. Or one that I learned many years ago uh, is, you know, you see a young person on the street child. That was once me. Now look at me. My skin is all dry. You know, I can barely climb the stairs. You know, and then you see a really old person, infirm. That's going to be me too. That's going to be me too. This is how we're asked to look at the world because we're asked to look at the world and see the truth of the way things are. Now, of course, it's a lot easier for us as we get older, right? It's a lot easier for us to get older and as we age to begin to understand that we will die. It's harder when you're younger. I really first saw this when I started teaching classes. Uh, when I started teaching, and you know, we used to do, we still do classes on death. I think it was one of the first classes I ever took, one of the first courses I ever took on death. And I remember a young woman, you know, probably in her 20s, raising her hand because it's really hard you know, for me to get this, because I've, n- I've never known anybody who died. I mean, I remember when I was new to practice and I began to hear that all beings die. I was like, holy shit, you got to be kidding me. I'm going to die? I mean, it was like that. I was like, I never even wanted, you know, I didn't ever even thought about that, of course, because I never even want to about, think about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. You know, and of course, as we get older, you know, we see death a lot more. We understand. You know, over the past year, as, as we all know, I guess my, you know, my mother passed away. It was actually a week or so before this retreat last year that my mom died. You know, in uh, this past fall, uh, my dear friend Jim, Jim Rogers, died. Very close friend of mine. My friend Harry, you know, who turned on the heater in his car, died in May. Suddenly, when I was away, I got an email from a friend of mine. Ken, a beloved member of our group, passed away this past year. Diane, another beloved member of our group that most of us knew, passed away. You know, and as I kind of have gone through this over the past year, uh, 
it's really intense, you know. I mean, just my mother dying would have been enough, believe me. Uh, but it's just been a very intense year in terms of uh, confronting the truth of death. You know, and being a good Dharma student, one of the ways that I was able to and that I sought to meet this suffering and this truth was to ask the question, you know, what is there to learn? What is there to learn? What is there to learn? You know, and I would just ask that question, you know, just ask that question, you know, what's, what will come up? You know, I don't know what there is to learn, believe me, but what's going to come up out of the heart? And what came up was, what you need to learn is that you're going to go too. You know, what happened to them is going to happen to you. You're going to go too. You know, what came up was, I'm going to go too, and I've got to find out what matters in this life. You know, so the next question that came up was, I'm seeing all these people die who are so dear to me. What really matters in this life? You know, it just seems like we're here for a while watch a few good movies, listen to a few good tunes, and then we die. What really matters in this life? What matters? And I asked that question. I asked that question. You know, and the answer came up really clear to me. What matters is the heart. What matters is love. And it was so clear, so clear. And I talked about this last night, you know, how, you know, I had really kind of been very cynical about the heart and love for a long time. This was a huge turning point for me these deaths because what happened was it turned me to love it turned me in the direction of love so when we understand that we'll die as the Buddha said understanding death we gain a foothold in the deathless we turn to the heart we turn to love Out of that, the question comes, what do I need to do to fulfill my wish to be happy? What would action be that would be an expression of self-love for me? What would action be that would be an expression of self-love for others? What came up for me and what comes up for all of us when we open to the truth of death, of course, is this understanding that not only will we die, but that time is short. Time is short. You know, one of the things that came up has come up really strong for me in the last year, and just in my practice and doing what we're asked to do and reflect on death is, and you know, particularly this last year, what's come strong for me is like, if I'm going to find happiness, I better do it now. Well, I've still got some time. You know, while well, I've still got some time, if I'm going to love myself and I'm going to love others, I better get on my horse and start doing that. When we think about some of the Buddha's teachings on anger, uh, we can reflect back on understanding that time is short and that we need to take advantage of the time we had. Because you know, anger is really the other side of love. Anger is the biggest obstacle to love. Anger is sometimes called ill will, and metta is sometimes, I mean, Tanjeff often talks about anger as ill will and metta as non-ill will. 
is the most direct obstacle, most direct obstacle to love. The Buddha said, unlike those who don't realize that we're here on the verge of perishing, those who do, their quarrels are stilled. You know, and of course I, you know, aversion has been, you know, that's kind of my style, you know, and just, you know, you know, of course worked on it a lot, but, you know, that habitual way of looking at the people on the street and having aversion to this one and to that one and, of course, that's been my lineage, you know, I mean, of anger and aversion, you know. I think back on, you know, came from a military family. You know, my great-grandfather was a colonel in the Russian army, was shot and killed in the Russo-Japanese War, you know. My grandfather was a major in the Russian army. You know, my father used to say, there were three brothers, my grandfather and his two brothers and my father used to say, the men of our family were only interested in two things, vodka and guns. (laughs) My father was a really angry guy, really angry guy, you know, and I inherited that and followed faithfully in their footsteps. You know, and as I've gone through this deepening realization of my own death, one of the things that has come out of that very strongly is a disenchantment with this aversion and this anger. You know, and it's so different than like, oh, there's aversion, that's not so good, I've got to put that to the side. There's a real understanding about the drawbacks of aversion, a wisdom that has really come out of understanding the truth of death and its life is short. And that wisdom is, this aversion is standing in my way of happiness really seeing that, you know, and as long as I keep proliferating this aversion and acting and thinking, you know, along those lines, you know, I'm going to be standing at a distance from my heart and from my capacity to find happiness in my life. We have so little time. It's such a waste of time, and that's kind of what the Buddha was saying. If we realize how little time we have, we realize that why am I spending my time in this aversion? It's not serving me. I mean, I've most of my life felt like it served me. You know? But we really see it's not serving me. I'm frittering away the little bit of time I have. How do I want to spend my time? Is this how I want to spend my time? Time is short. I don't want to spend it in aversion, quarreling with myself, aversive to others. I want to find happiness. I want to know the happiness of the heart. You know, so it's out of this wisdom and love for ourselves that we put aversion to the side, understanding that time is short and we don't want to spend our time thinking along the lines of aversion and acting out of aversion. You know, it's a limited window. It's a limited window. We don't know when we're going to go. It could be really soon. Life is really short. Most of my friends, to be honest with you, aren't here anymore. Person who turned me on to meditation when I was in college, my friend Ed, died a few years ago. I think he was in his 50s still. When I was 35 and at my bottom of despair in my life, you know, the person who steered me to Buddhism, my friend Lance, who gave me some books, he passed away a few years ago. 
you know, I used to use this metaphor in terms of understanding that, you know, our time is short and we want to make the most of it. I used to use this metaphor, this analogy, like if you were in Paris and it was the first time you were there and probably going to be the only time you were there and you had five days, you know, you weren't going to spend your time in your hotel room, you know, reading old magazines. You were going to make the most out of that short piece of time that you have. I've kind of modified that analogy. It's kind of like you're in Paris for a couple of hours and you have one thing that you can do. You have one thing that you can do. Ultimately, our practice comes down to that. What's the one important thing? This is what happens when people are dying, right? You know, having worked with people are dying. It's like, I'm going to die. All this other stuff doesn't really matter, you know? The only thing that matters right now is opening my heart you know, and being here with love and with compassion. So what's this one thing? We want to know a true happiness. We want to know the happiness of the heart and act accordingly. Life is so precious. There's a possibility in this life for great happiness. The happiness of the heart is the greatest happiness that there is. So we want to make the most of our time that we're here and live in accord with the heart, to put the heart first, to love ourselves and others. So let's just close our eyes for a minute.